Welcome to the What To Do Next podcast, where we discuss strategies to find your purpose in life. This time, I had the pleasure of talking to Claude Clément, who has an extensive career background in biomedical engineering and neurotechnologies. In this episode, he's sharing his life journey, all the way from choosing a university degree to leading innovation in healthcare technologies. Today we have a, a very special guest. Uh, we have uh, Claude Clement with us. Um, he's the the president of the of the BioAlps Association, uh, which is a, a life science cluster that um, that fosters innovation in the in the field of uh, of life sciences, both in terms of research and industry um, in in Western Switzerland. He's also a freelance consultant and has uh, had many leading positions in, in the healthcare uh, industry in the past. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, with us, Claude. Um, it's uh, it's great to have you. It's I think your um, your career is super interesting, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to to have the uh, ability to to talk with you a little bit. How are you doing today? Fine, fine. Thank you for the nice words. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and to speak with, uh, to debate, uh, to discuss with you and also to have uh, this uh, recorded for the use of, uh, of young people. I'm very attracted in keeping, even if I'm an old guy, to keep in touch with uh, the next generation that will carry further all what we have done so far. So um, I'm very happy to to answer to your question and to discuss about my my professional uh, career and uh, what I have done uh, so far in the medical field, but also in other fields. See, you were you were saying like uh, earlier, um, even if you're just an old guy, I think like your your expertise actually is what what it, what is so valuable for for the the younger generation because um i didn't really have the chance yet to talk with someone that kind of had such an extensive um like career in 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 the specialization of healthcare but very broadly working on on so many topics and working particularly in so many different aspects of of one particular um career path and i think it would be very interesting for everybody if you can kind of give a, a first overview sort of what you've done throughout your life how you got into the into the field of of healthcare um and then how this finally led you to take sort of these leading positions in in healthcare and how you um why and how you were getting into the position that you wanted to steer the future of healthcare can you give us a quick overview of this yes of course uh first i came to healthcare by by chance, but um, I believe chance is always something that you can steer a little bit in your life. So it's mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, before uh, joining EPFL, um, I was hesitating between biology and uh, electricity. So these are two very different aspects, at least in the 70s when I had to make the choice of what I wanted to study. And then finally, I went to I went to EPFL and uh, in the section called electricity, where there are two two main current in electricity is uh, what we call the 
uh, electronics and uh, power electricity and i chosen the the power field so i was more interested in megawatts something like this rather than in small things and uh, i did my master thesis it was not called this uh, at that time but uh, uh, the, the 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 subject was a tiny step motor for the first motor activated uh, watches you know for the for the analogic watches as we called them and this was a very interesting work and uh, with a great professor as a coach and uh, and at the end of this i had the privilege to be hired by one of the big uh, watchmaker group that was focusing to start a total new area of uh, of uh, watches going from the cla classical mechanical watch to to the electronic watches with uh, analogic display with step motors and so on so so i worked a few years in the in the development of such motors for watch applications and then I had, after several, uh, after various steps, various departments and so on, I went to, I was involved a, a, as a designer of actuator motors. I was involved in the, the Swatch project. I don't know if Swatch uh, means something for you, but it was a cheap, plastic, fashionable, funny watch that the very traditional watchmakers decided to go, especially to fight in the low-cost segment where they were very weak in front of the Japanese competition. And uh, the Swatch, even if it looks like a common watch for you, it was a cultural revolution within the watch industry because the, the watch industry is a very conservative, old-fashioned branch where, uh, you know, uh, cost is not a factor and it's uh, just very luxury expensive stuff and there we were totally reinventing the the field by doing something that was young fun emotional something that you sell like a consumer product but um, being exposed to this crazy world of uh, of innovation in the watch I was then having the privilege of uh, being asked to apply the same concepts of really reinventing from scratch, taking from, from with a blank sheet of paper. The, the watch industry decided after the huge success of the Swatch, they decided to apply the same mindset, and I insist on the word mindset, uh, to, to other branch of the industry. Mm -hmm. So first, they wanted to do a car, which was crazy. I mean, the watchmakers making a car. I mean, you you cannot make a car if you do not have a lot of experience. But they wanted to do an electric car that was called the that was called the the Swatchmobile at that mm -hmm. time, and it became after a while the the Smart. So, uh, but we failed because batteries were not available at that time to have a long duration you know i mean there was no battery so we were 20 25 years maybe 30 years too early in the concept and uh, and then we sold the 
the basic concept to Mercedes that is the smart and so on, but uh, and we close this business. The second branch of diversification based on the Swatch philosophy was the wearable communication devices. Mm-hmm. At that time, and I'm speaking about the early 80s, um, the, 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 the boss of the Swatch group wanted to put a phone in the watch. And, uh, but there also we failed. It was too early. We were not able to integrate all this in a watch. Going in, a, in the size of a watch was extremely difficult compared to the f- early um, cell phone that came uh, in, the nine, in the early 90s. That they were huge boxes, you know, very heavy, 1.5 kilo of electronic. To, so it was not wearable as a watch. So we were again targeting too far, uh, too far, and we dropped this uh, diversification. And I was in charge of the third diversification that went a bit longer. It was the medical device diversification, meaning that uh, the Swatch Group wanted to make, especially drug delivery system, drug delivery pumps that were wearable. And again, we were focusing everything on the watch. So the idea was to put a drug delivery pump inside the watch, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you can get your drug from your watch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we did quite a lot of work there to, to make really this first medical wearables, because the watch is the first wearable. I mean, wearable electronic consumer product. But then we wanted to apply the same type of technologies to, to a medical device. And this was new to, to the watch industry because the world of uh, medical devices is entirely different in terms of regulation, of market access, of patient perception, and so on. So, so we managed to carry a few projects that still have some of uh, daughters and son. I mean, they, they have produced some kids, this product in terms of, uh, of some product that are on the market today that found their origin in this work. But after a few years, the Swatch Group decided to, to drop the branch of medical devices because, again, it was a question of image. Uh, the, the Swatch was, the watch, Swatch was a fashion device, uh, emotion, colorful, fun, young, and so on. The medical device at that time were perceived as something that you hide, something that is uh, boring for old people and so on. So this was not at all the same target, the same market. Mm-hmm. So we realized that it was too complex as a watchmaker to become a, a manufacturer of medical devices. The, the, the culture was quite different. But this is how I entered in the field of medical devices, first by the wearable, the external devices, which is easier. And then uh, after the, the SWAT group, I, I joined the um, I joined a company that was making pacemaker that was called Intermedics. This company has disappeared. It has been acquired by Guidant and then uh, now Boston Scientific. And it was the number two manufacturer of pacemaker in the world. And they had a, a factory, the headquarter was in Texas and, uh, and they had a factory in Switzerland where I was located. And there, there I learned the basic of a total different type of devices, which is implantable devices. Because when you go to, to put some electronic in the human body, you enter in an entire new world. 
in terms of technical complexity, but also the relation with the patient is totally different because you invade the, you come in. I don't like the term invasive when we speak about devices because this is a very relative concept about invasive. But with an implant, you come in, you start to be part of your patient and the relation that the patient has with such a device is totally different than from a wearable device, for example. Mm -hmm. And first, I, I approached this work I had at Intermedics, designing and building pacemakers. I was first, I was at that time very much of an engineer, meaning that I had the, the passion of technology. And, uh, and I found a lot of satisfaction for in pacemakers because there is a lot of challenge, technical challenges to solve. So this is a very broad field of expertise that you need to do a good pacemaker. You don't need to be a good engineer in electronics. You need to be much more. You need to, to understand an entire field, which includes the trying to understand the human body, which is... Uh, still something that I have not understood yet, but I mean, I'm, I'm progressing every day. The, uh, so it was a, a very, culturally a very important uh, education for me, because there I learned a lot of things that I, you never learn at school. Even in the best schools like uh, EPFL, you don't learn the, how to develop and design a product that is so special than a human implant. Mm -hmm. Learn the basic technology of design, software, conception, and so on. But um, so this was um, this uh, time in the it was in the early nineties that I was at Intermedics was really a good a good um, education for me in terms of a large wide spectrum knowledge, I mean, uh, far beyond the pure technology. But it was also the first time that I was exposed to patient, because when you, when you develop a medical device, you need to do it as the patient would like to have, you know, and, uh, and this is quite difficult to understand what they want, because they simply don't know what we are going to do with their body. And doctors usually also are very conservative in terms of technology. You know, they, they know the body very well. They know, they know the diseases. They know what we should do, but they have no clue about the approach. Should we go very heavily? I mean, put a lot of electronics in a device to have a supercomputer implanted to do a lot of decision taking or do we want to leave the decision to the doctors and so on? So doctors are not very good guidance for this. But we need to listen to, to patients because I very quickly discovered this time at Intermedics that if you don't listen to patients, you simply fail mm -hmm. because uh, the patient acceptance in the broad sense of the word will be low. It's a uh, People would not like your device because it makes them look like a fool, for example, because you have a plug on your, on your head that goes out and you don't want this. Or uh, it's not easy to use because, say, for example, you have to recharge it every two days 
and you don't want this, you forget it, and so you forget to charge and so on. So, so it's very difficult to, to make a, a device that fits the needs of the patient. So uh, it was also a good education for me in terms of modesty of what we do. Mm -hmm. I, I understood that you, we should not over-engineer, we should listen to what patients would like to have and what we can do for them. Because uh, by over-engineering, we make things having a very long development cycle, maybe never reach the ultimate goal of, of a commercial product. And there we fail too. If we, if we try to do something too complex, mm -hmm. then we may go a long, long way along the way, but we don't reach the goal. Mm -hmm. and with a medical device, this is what is important, is to have a product that is for a patient. And then after intermedics, uh, I joined, I had a small uh, involvement in another company in between, but I joined Medtronic, which is the giant company, the world leader in active implants, in implanted electronics. They started in the cardiac pacemakers too, but they also developed all the early uh, neurostimulation devices. And mm -hmm. this is through Medtronic, even if I was first starting in the cardiac field, that I entered in the field of neuro. Mm -hmm. And um, and this was another step in my uh, discovery of the human body and the complexity of the human mind, mind not being the functioning of the brain, but the, the perception of patient and the way patient behaves and so on. So there, through Medtronic, and uh, as I was uh, uh, leading a, a manufacturing plant that was doing all the first neuro project, I met a lot of patients with neuro, neuro disorders. And, um, and this was fascinating because the, the patient I knew from the cardiac diseases, the heart is more a kind of mechanical machine. You know, it's a, we understand the heart very well. I mean, we... we it's a predictable device. If right. you stimulate there, you know what you get there. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, so this is something that, uh, that now we understand very well after 50 years of experience in heart stimulation. We know everything. I, I used to say we know the heart by heart. It's, uh, I mean, we, we know all the tricks, uh, which is also a bit of a frustration because now the, the, the real innovation in uh, cardiac is, is quite low. I mean, there is no much, not much that has happened recently mm -hmm. in the development of improving cardiac health. But in the brain is the opposite. In the brain, we are at the very beginning. We don't know much about the brain and the nervous system. And this is what is fascinating because we have already tremendous results, but the, the scientific... Uh, understanding is poor today. So it's one example where sometimes technology is ahead of science. For example, deep brain stimulation that has been used since the late 80s to block the symptoms of Parkinson, of Parkinson disease, uh, for 
at least two decades, we have put these electrodes in the thalamus, managed to, to put patient in a much better condition. I mean, having no tremor, no shaking any longer, but we had no clue about what was happening. Mm -hmm. We knew that it works, but uh, we don't know all the mechanisms. Now we start mm -hmm. to understand a little bit the mechanisms, but okay, it's good that people work to try to understand. Mm -hmm. But seen from my engineering perspective, I don't care too much to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. what, what counts for me is that we have done a quarter of a million of patients got electrode in their brain and they are not trembling from Parkinson any longer. Mm -hmm. This is what counts, you know, and it's a, and, and this in my uh, development of uh, as an engineer through the medical industry, mm -hmm. I have grown more and more in this direction, mm -hmm. saying, okay, it's good that we have people that solve problems. I mean, there are tons of problems to solve. We have plenty of good engineers to, to do this work. I mean, to, to find better solution. For example, today, the deep brain electrode we implant are much better than what we were implanting um, in the early days of uh, deep brain stimulation. But what became more and more important for me is to get the global picture. What are we doing? What, what is our ultimate goal? Does it make sense to do what we do? Or, or should we go in another direction instead of, of going in this direction? And this was for me uh, extremely interesting. And the, the main result of this early days of deep brain stimulation was the fact that the, we managed to develop an, if, an implant that was not visible, meaning the stimulator is in, is in the chest area, in the pectoral area. The electrodes are carried over the skull and then penetrate from the top down to the, the, the deep to the brain. But this is fantastic for the patient because the patient is not looking as a Parkinsonian any longer. The, pocket, the, the patient knows that he still has the disease, but nobody else knows uh, besides the family and so on. So when he meets somebody in the street, he's a normal person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I think this was the value of this device, even if it's, it's far from being the ultimate solution and so on. The device is helping patients to have a, a, a great improvement of their quality of life. And for them, the quality of life for a Parkinson is not to be seen as a Parkinsonian. This mm -hmm. is what is their quality of life. For other diseases, it's another quality of life. But it's, uh, for, for them, this, this was what is important. There are other things that came later on that are... Uh, uh, also showing great great interest and the um, at the time I was at the VIS center until recently now I have retired I'm, I'm uh, an epi retired uh, person now but um, we worked at the VIS center in Geneva on very advanced project in neurotechnology where we try to interface with the brain to be able to read the movement intention of patients that are totally paralyzed. Okay. 
So the goal is to pick in their brain the signals that the brain still sends to the limbs, but do not reach the limbs because the, the broken the spinal cord is broken or something like this. Okay, so the idea there is to pick the signal, to try to understand these signals and to translate them in something useful for a pyramid person. For example, activating, this was the first work, activating a robot arm or, or a cursor in a, in, in, on a tablet. Then uh, further work was to go and to stimulate directly the limbs, the paralyzed limb to be able to to move a, a paralyzed uh, arm or legs. And there too, I met a lot of patients, <laughs> paralyzed people that are very happy to be included in these programs. It's a privilege because only a, a tiny minority of these people have the chance to, to, to get this interface and to participate in these programs. And um, I, I spoke with them and they are very interesting, very motivated and so on. But there too, I discovered that they have sometimes needs that we do not expect, you know. <laughs> and um, and when you speak from a, f with a, a tetraplegic person, they often say that all what is related to their legs has been more or less been solved by their wheelchair. Mm -hmm. But I was even more fascinated to hear that most of them due to the, 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 the loss of control of their nerves from the neck below, they are incontinent, mm -hmm. have urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. And they are suffering a lot from this mm -hmm. because they always smell bad and they, their nose is functioning very well, you know? And they, so they feel very much ashamed of their body smells and so on. And they would like a solution for this before even their legs or their arms. <laughs> you know. They would like to be continent again. And I think this is, for me, a, a, an incredible message. But this is where the problems are. <laughs> and this is an enormous unmet medical need, not only for, for paralyzed people, but <laughs> urinary incontinence is one of the last totally unmet medical need. There are millions of people that suffer from this and nobody cares. <laughs> it, it is the same for pain. Chronic pain is now really considered by everybody in the medical community as a disease. As, I mean, but there is no cure besides taking some uh, uh, paracetamol and things like this, but there is no serious treatment, for example, of chronic pain <laughs> or chronic migraine of uh, uh, menstrual pain for women and so on. There is no solution. There is just fix up, but no serious solution that we could approach in a kind of uh, uh, really scientific way, you know. And, um, and, and I think this is, this is more and more I have been thinking this way to take really the global picture, to say, okay, what can all this beautiful technology do mm -hmm for the human being. Where should we focus our efforts? And my position today is to say, we should go to fields that are underserved today, mm -hmm. like pain, like urinary uh, incontinence. There, there are other, like for example, blindness. There is a lot of uh, work that is being done today. It's very difficult to try to make a blind person recover 
the, the site, but but this is uh, places where you see that you can do a lot. And um, and I had the the opportunity to work in the field of uh, cochlear implants. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in the field of people who lost the ability to have to to cap to to get the the signal from the eardrum mm -hmm. and carry it to the cochlea that which is a, the, the neurotranslator if you want of the of of the waves mm -hmm. of the mechanical waves and um, and um, some kids are born without the tiny bones that do the con the mechanical conduction of the vibrations from the eardrum to the cochlea and uh, so these kids are totally deaf from birth and if you don't help them they will have a real trouble in life because they will not speak because they don't get the feedback so they will not speak properly and by being not speaking and not hearing your life is very is having a very bad start I mean, they will not be able to attend school they will never be able to get a, a real profession and so on and they will totally be socially dependent on on the system and so on mm -hmm. so people have developed also in the in the 80s they have developed a very simple implant not the performance maybe is not ultimate uh, exciting but it works and it gives to these kids a certain sense of hearing of course they will not have the same hearing that you and i have but it's enough for them to understand the conversation mm -hmm. and it's also enough for them to start speaking properly mm -hmm. and to start uh, having a normal life so this is a good example of a development that has been done properly instead of trying to to do a very sophisticated uh, amplifier and, and communication system with a lot of electrodes, we kept to 22 electrodes, mm -hmm. meaning that we touch 22 zones of the cochlear and we activated 22 frequencies compared to the 3,500 that you naturally have. You know, mm -hmm. you have... So you your spectrum is wider and is much more um, accurate than if you have a, a cochlear implant. But we, sh we demonstrated that it was enough to have a proper understanding of a conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and instead, we worked on the implantability of this device, making sure that we can put it in kids before the age of one, which was a challenge because it's a very tiny organ. The cochlea is very small and so on. So introducing, so so the, the there the goal was to get this inside the body of a baby, mm -hmm. instead of developing a, a a great device. It was to to get a solution instead of adding more problems. You know, and this and this has also been for me a very good education to to say, okay, now we have the possibility to make. A serious change to a kid, but we need to do the right thing. And right. the right thing was to implant a very rough, simple device and to, to do it in a proper way. And mm -hmm. today it is a big success. And there too, there are 
there is uh, more than 200,000 kids that have benefited from this and had their life totally changed. So, uh, so, so, so you, you see this evolution between the pure engineering challenges mm-hmm. and the more human-centered mm-hmm. approach, Absolutely. which does not exclude the technology solution. I mean, we need people that find solutions, find better things, better chips, better software, uh, better radio communications. This is needed. We need to evolve. But anytime we have a possibility to jump in Mm -hmm. and say, okay, stop focusing on the technology, but go practical in the human body, then we could do it. And this is what I have done in the last few years to, to be a solution provider. There are enough people coming with additional problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to be one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to come with a solution. So it's, that is, it goes and it goes to, to, to the people and it is useful for, the, for a, a vast number of people. It is mm-hmm. also, it's good for science and uh, research to have uh, very advanced programs. But, um, but we need to always keep in mind that these programs do not reach a mass, mass of people. They help to develop the future product, but on the present and near-term approach, we need to work on other things that are more getting available soon for, for the patient. This is the evolution I have done myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think everybody needs to go this direction, but I mean, this was my personal Mm-hmm. And what is fun that I started as a pure technologist because I had this passion of electricity, electronics, and so on. And uh, but I was a little bit hesitating on more biology and uh, nature-centered uh, activities. And I finished, in fact, more in soft matter than in hard matters. Right. <laughs> so it's uh, so. So I'm I'm quite glad. I think I closed the loop somehow in a nice in a nice way, and uh, and also I think all this uh, enthusiasm I have is due to the human body because I'm discovering every day what a fantastic machine it is, mm-hmm. and how and how ridiculously small we are compared in our technology mm-hmm. compared to the to the brain. I told you that the heart, we have done a lot and there is not much progress, but with the brain, I mean, we are just entering. I mean, we are, it's, it's the, the beginning of an enormous revolution. There is still so much to do that, uh, that I can just say, go, go guys, go. I mean, go into it. <laughs> go, go into it. And, uh, and work and always try to to keep um, simple concept. I mean, I have learned through this time a few kind of basic rules, you know, of, <laughs> when you are in a, any project, it's not limited to, to neural project, but uh, it's first is do not over-engineer, do, do not target too high. I think especially when you speak uh, for people health, it's better to do a small step, but that works and that becomes available, 
than to dream about the ultimate repair that will never come, that will or be limited to a very few number of patients. So I think we should be modest in our development and do a step-by-step approach. And uh, this is also easier in this field because you need approval to do to, to sell devices. And if you do a small step, you can get approval. If you do a giant step, even if you take in the technology you achieve the the the, the result, maybe you will not get approval mm-hmm. because it's using a material that is not biocompatible or whatever. So it is of no use for the for, for the for the mass of patients. So so this is my my first advice. Uh, advice: don't go, don't try to go to the moon before you have crossed the Atlantic. You know, right. I think the right. f- for me this is a kind of basic, and mm-hmm. this is especially applicable in medical devices, but it can be also applicable in other fields. The the second one is to try to have one innovation at a time, because I have failed myself many projects and seen many projects fail, where we, you try to stuff many new things in a project. And there is always one that gets wrong, you know, and uh, that, that puts the entire project uh, at risk or, or even that it disappears. So it's better to have one innovation. For example, if you develop a new concept of electrode for the brain, for example, my advice is if your concept is very new in terms of the geometry and the way you introduce it in the brain or the size and so on, keep con- conventional material, you know, or if you have a new material that will decrease the contact impedance and so on, introduce this material, but on a conventional geometry. Mm-hmm. But don't do an innovative geometry with an innovative material. Right. So Keep it simple. But double the risk of failure, you multiply mm-hmm. it by 10, mm-hmm. you know, because of the interrelation of these two innovations. The, 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 there are there are side effects of innovation on the other one that uh, that increase the, the probability of failure, mm-hmm. and I think this this is also my my advice I I will give to 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 any type of project try to have one big innovation and focus on it mm-hmm. and forget the other and and this is where people will remind you you will have done this. You are the first to come with uh, a one millimeter um, uh, deep brain stimulation. That's it. And it works. Rather than to to also be the first one that on the same device that has introduced a new material and so on. So that I think for this is uh, this is very capital. And also uh, the the other advice, because I've seen so many failures of this, that we very often underestimate the effort of making a big project. And uh, and when you work, as I have done uh, several decades working in the field of active implants, all these projects are extremely long and extremely expensive. And there is no exception. And I keep seeing people that come with great ideas 
and they say, oh, I'm going to be on the market in two years, and this will cost uh, us two million. No, this does not exist in this field. Right. It will take you 10 years, it will cost you 100 million, period. Hmm. Nobody ever managed to do better. Many people try, they all failed. So why is it like this? I think it's due to the complexity of the human body. I mean, you don't go in the human body for free. I mean, this is, in, invasiveness is a cost-heavy um, parameter. If you, want, if you go invasive, it means it's going to be expensive. Mm-hmm. There is no free, there is no cheap invasive. This does not exist. Mm-hmm. Even if people keep claiming this, it's wrong. It's a, it's, it's a nonsense. And um, the other uh, advice also by, again, taking the global picture is to, you need to be respectful of the law of physics and the nature of the human body. For example, in neuroscience, uh, if you want to work above the neck, you have a skull, you know, and this is not negotiable. Having a skull means if you want to go inside, you need to make a hole somewhere, you know. And this is not negotiable. I mean, th- there is no other way. Right. And, uh, and this is my my lesson that I took from all this year of experience that we, we need really to take the distance from the project. And before starting developing, we need to understand really all, all the, the global picture. Maybe in, in, just to come back to your last point, like maybe in a more global and abstract way, um, when you say like respect the laws of physics, respect uh, the human body, you could uh, also say like acknowledge the challenges ahead of you, right? Like this is the, the physical reality you have to deal yes. with yes. and you need to acknowledge that this exists. And then when you want to work on it, then you need to find a solution for this, for yes. this particular issue and not... Um, over-engineer um, a solution. Yes, or, that... or, or at least take a, a, a very global system approach. If I take, again, the example of neurotechnology, you have a lot of people that develop great electrodes, mm-hmm. you know, many channels, well-placed and so on. You have other people that develop great electronic and software to be able to treat the signals that we are going to, to pick with these electrodes. Nobody knows how to connect these two things, mm-hmm. you know? So this is typical of kind of lack of balance in a project. Mm-hmm. You, on one side, you develop a great thing, you develop another great thing, but you don't know how to make this work as a system because right. you don't know how to connect them. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in this case, it's better maybe to have less channel, maybe less powerful electronic, but something that you can connect, you know, mm-hmm. and the, uh, like this, you have a product at the end. Otherwise you have on one side, a great electrode on one side, a great electronic, but this mm-hmm. is not a product and it's not a solution for health, you know, right. and this, uh, these are the type of thing that I have done more and more by getting older and older to really ask the question that hurts, you know, that put mm-hmm. my finger where it hurts. And, and asking people, saying, okay, nice, nice electrodes, but how, how are you going to connect it? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and all, very often I have no no answer. Oh yes, we will develop something. Okay, I say good luck. Uh, it's a, we have tried this, but it does not work that easily. So uh, so I think this is what I try to contribute today when I work as in advisory boards and uh, and as as a consultant. I try to be the nasty one that come with the silly questions that uh, nobody wants to answer. You right. Know, that, that people want to elude, say, oh, yes, we will find, yes, somebody will find a solution. But uh, I will tell them, no, nobody has a solution today. So if you are able to provide it, great, you will be a star in, in our environment. But if you don't, you're just, just running for failure. And, and this is what I try to do today, is to, to really only keep the global picture. Right, right. See, like I, I find this super interesting. What, uh, what you're saying um, about, like, this is what you're trying to do. Is you're trying to sort of bring it back down to earth and um, and and establish a helpful solution, sort of a a sort of altruistic approach to like what is it that humanity needs in your particular sector, which is uh, which is healthcare, and then how can we enable this. To happen because when I think of what you were saying um, earlier, um, when you started, uh, you got into into engineering because well you're simply interested in electricity and you you joined a company like uh, for example in, in your case um, Swatch um, to kind of approach and. Um, an innovative problem. You you were talking about this mindset, which I I, I really enjoyed, like this young, fun, innovative uh, product development. And then you kept applying it. And this, I think, is is already a very valuable lesson, which is like you 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 developed um, like the swatch. It's it it was a, a huge success, but you also developed other projects like for example the smart car or even like you know wearable devices um, with communication possible possibilities that um, later on if we look at today are, are are huge successes so this mindset of of just general innovation if you want to talk uh, if we want to call it was a a, a driving factor, but what was also called sort of a um, a source of success for for everything um, that um, that you touched. And over time, it seems to me like you were when you were going into the, the medical sector and so on, um, you were driven more and more by challenge. Like you were seeing how difficult it was to approach problems in, in this sector. And then when finally it went into the direction of, of neuroengineering, you saw the complexity of the human body. And it's like, there is a massive challenge that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that needs tackling. That's not, um, that's not easy to do, but there's also where you see a, a clear shift in your thinking from um, this is what, this is an innovative problem to this is a, a challenge that requires an innovation to, I need to help people. In fact, earlier you were saying like um, when we were talking about the, the cochlear implants, if you don't help them, they will have big troubles in life, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's clearly a shift in thinking is like, I can use innovation in order to make the world a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's a certain like enthusiasm that, uh, that you have for both um, complexity and 
tackling complex problems, um, specifically when you talk about sort of neuroengineering solutions, and also when it comes to like developing something that just works, right? Like yeah. this is something that yeah. that works. Do not over-engineer the solution. This is what mm-hmm. you what and you and it's a, again it's a balance. I mean, we need the craziness of academia to develop crazy project. We need we need this drive, you know. We <laughs> need, but also we we need to to have a useful technology that is applicable. But uh, but one without the other will not exist. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? If you just do pure complex project as I have done at the Decenter and so on, um, this will not help the industry. I mean, it will not create jobs and things like this. It will not give work for people. It will not provide a device for, for, the, for the healthcare sector. If you only have the industry, then we, we will still be at... Uh, I mean, we will have no pacemakers, we will have no uh, uh, neurostimulators and so on, because mm-hmm. we will never have the gut and the drive to, to develop them. So we need both. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have been between these two worlds and what I try to do more and more and I've tried to do in the last, say, one decade is to bridge. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to make these two worlds communicate and take the value from each other and, and grow together. And this is where uh, I think we need each other. So I'm not, I'm not at all saying that we should not do advanced research on the opposite. I think it's uh, fully necessary. Where I just warn uh, young people like uh, working in exciting project at uh, say at EPFL or in, in the labs and so on, that taking this great ideas and great concepts that are in an academic environment and taking them to the real world and transforming them in a product for people sometimes is much more difficult than what you expect. Right. So, uh, because you are still in this research mode, you are still in this great, great device mm-hmm. that will never be a product. So you need to downgrade your expectation somehow to be able to go out mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the real world. And this is a difficult mental exercise to, to amputate your innovation from a lot of things to be able to enter into reality. Is that your, also a bit your, your vision for, for the future, for example, in your involvement with, with the BioAlps Association, that um, you want to make sure that innovation actually reaches the end consumer, like in this case, the patient. Yes. Yeah, yeah BioAlp is, is just an association that gather all the people active in the health sector in Western Switzerland, meaning... Mm-hmm from the startup to EPFL is a member, for example. So, mm-hmm. so, so, uh, so we have all the people involved in research, production, distribution, uh, manufacturing, or whatever that is related to the, the schools and the, the nurse schools. And th- I mean, everybody that is in this type of environment. And of course, we try to emulate and make cross fertilization and things like this. And part of it is to 
of course, to try to to have this great development developed in uh, in universities to reach the the market. But it's not our this is not our charter. If you want, this is not what we do actively. We try to facilitate, but we are not having project for the technology transfer or something. There are other type of um, organizations that do it very well. So it's a complex exercise mm -hmm. for which sometimes uh, you are not fully ready if you are a, a good scientist. You are not automatically a good businessman because you, mm -hmm. you, you need to go and find money and things like this. That's, I mean, it's not, it's not the same type of skills that what you right. have developed so far. So it's a so sometimes uh, I think people should be careful when when you have a great idea, it's maybe better instead of trying to create your startup yourself and exit EPFL and and put your product on the market yourself, you should maybe try to get somebody else doing it for you mm -hmm. and go on in creating, innovating more on other ideas and then at the, at the end sell it to somebody. So it's a it's because it's difficult to be to be both a, a great scientist and a great entrepreneur. You know, I mean, there are some examples, but I mean, it's it's not natural. I mean, it's you, you need to be a kind of superman if you're able to create something great and drive the company that is having success, mm -hmm. having the same same. There are very rare cases of people that have managed to go from the original idea to being a, a rich entrepreneur. But there are not many. <laughs> there are not many. So, uh, But I think it's also what, what you were saying earlier, like, um, you know, start, well, do what you can immediately influence right now, right? Like this, is, uh, this was one of the kind of advices that you, that you wanted to, to give to people um, was, you know, don't, um, don't tackle like, a, you know, don't try to save humanity in every aspect possible, but, but um, see where you can uh, make a difference in, uh, in a very simple way and then try to essentially make life a little bit better for everyone uh, uh, living on this earth. And uh, with this, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, for for joining us today. It was I, so. I don't know if we covered all what you wanted to cover. Probably not, but. Uh, but I think uh, I think there's <laughs> a lot of lessons already that uh, that uh, that can be learned uh, from this about uh, about a mindset um, that um, that. Yes, I think it's a key innovation. word. To, the key words to retain is a mindset. I mean, you need to to have this attitude in your professional life that that is structured in a way that you know what is your goal i mean mm -hmm. not not doing research for the sake of research but trying to have a, a goal mm -hmm. but i think also an important point in in terms of this 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 mindset is that maybe your goal initially doesn't need to be incredibly defined if you can do it that's probably the best but i think in most cases people cannot directly pinpoint at the age of 20 
you know, I'm going to work on this particular problem. But if they follow maybe a similar approach to what you were doing, which was like, you know, at an early, very early age, I'm interested in electricity or biology. What am I going to do? Well, let's start with electricity. Let's let's see um, what this is about. Oh, I'm interested in innovation. Like, let me let me let me follow this path, and then like step by step, mm-hmm. you will uncover more of what you actually want to want to do. Yes, and, and you, the the, the everybody is changing quite a lot too. I'm, I'm not the same person than, as I was at the mm-hmm. age of 20. So, uh, so, so there is an evolution of, the, of, our, of, of our mind, of our way of, of doing. And also uh, life is, I mean, there is a lot of uh, opportunities that shows up like this. Sometimes you take one, sometimes you take another one and it's direct your, your path. So I'm, I'm not a planner too much. I'm a more kind of opportunistic. I should not say this, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not. I have never planned for, for example, mm-hmm. to to work in neurotechnology. I have never planned this. It came as it came, you know. It's uh, mm-hmm. and I think uh, if we, the 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 only thing that you need to grab the opportunities where they when they come, mm-hmm. and they always come. I mean, there are always a lot of opportunities, and this is for us to say, okay, now I go in this direction because I feel this is something for me, you know? Right. And uh, I so think this is what I did. And I think that, that think brings that. us back to, to this, this like keyword of, um, of mindset, because it is also a form of, of, of innovation in order to, to say like, okay, I'm going to grab opportunities as they, as they come. Like this is, um, this is also innovating, even if it's just applying this to your own life and innovating yeah, your own true. life. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think this, especially with this keyword, um, this is like the key takeaway that uh, that I would really like everybody to to um, to to think about after this um, after this uh, recording. And. Um, I really want to thank you again. This has been a really interesting talk. Um, I'm I'm so glad you managed to uh, uh, to share your story here. Um, I think this can be really really interesting, uh, especially for a lot of uh, young people um, working right now, um, specifically um, in the field of, uh, of 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 research and engineering. Um, been an absolute pleasure having you here um, and I hope uh, we get to talk very soon again. Yes, I'm available for further conversation, no problem. <laughs> and questions and remarks and uh, so. okay, thank, thank you, you very so much. much.